It's good to see you guys. Everybody doing well? Good. Hopefully after singing that song, you're doing well, right? <laughs> right? It is indeed well with our souls. I think. I, I have a lot of favorite hymns. I Stand Amazed is one of my favorite hymns, but It Is Well is right up there at the top, probably top three. Tell Lance Burroughs that, top three. Well, we find ourselves in the midst, I don't know what to call this, the midst of a message, the midst of a, midst of a series of messages. It's kind of a series because we've taken more than one message, but walking through, <clears throat> thinking about what we do, how we respond when catastrophe strikes. And we spent the last couple weeks talking about our first response must be to rest in the ultimate sovereignty of God. And I feel like we've done it, you know, at least a somewhat of a sufficient job of thinking about that truth, that we must come to the one who is in control of all things, who has ordained all things, and who is going to bring about his purposes to pass because he is sovereign over all things. And so as a result of that truth, when difficulty arises, when tragedy occurs, when catastrophe strikes, we can rest in this God. We can trust in this God who is sovereign. But there's a second a second response that we must have that is focused again upon God himself. And the second response would be this. It would be we must cling to the resolute goodness of God. We must cling to the resolute goodness of God. You see, we rest in God's sovereign purposes being carried out, and we are to cling to the fact that he is completely good. Because we run into quite a dilemma if God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all things, but he is not innately good in who he is. Because then you have this God who is in charge of everything, carrying out his purposes, doing everything that he has planned, but without the balance of a complete and perfect goodness. And when we think about the goodness of God, that fills our hearts with joy. Because we have a God who is completely and totally sovereign and in control, so we can trust him. But that trust is elevated. That trust is emphasized. That, that trust becomes keenly apparent to us when we cling to the goodness of God as well. And this complete goodness of God is, is also being carried out in his plan. So he is good as God, and his plan is good. And so he is working out his good plan throughout this world, throughout our lives, as long as he 
allows this world to linger on. Listen, when catastrophe strikes, you have to cling with all your worth to the truth that God is good all the time and that all the time God is good. There's never a moment in time when God's goodness ceases to be. His goodness is not determined by your circumstances, but rather it is grounded in who he is as a good God. Brings to mind the song that you sang as children, perhaps, right? God is so good. To we respond, hallelujah, right? To develop this for the fruit of our own souls, I want to look at a couple of passages that, that magnify this truth. I don't know if we'll get through both of them today. You know, time is of the essence, so we'll see. But I want us to first turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. I love this psalm. I've spent a lot of time reading through this psalm, meditating upon this psalm, especially various stages of my life. And it's amazing how God uses difficulties in life to drive us to himself, isn't it? You know, we find even his goodness in that reality, that when we go through difficulty as those who believe in Christ and trust in Christ and love Christ, it is in those difficulties that, that he drives us to himself. And, and so I've been to Psalm 73 over the course of my life numerous times, Primarily for that reason, thinking through difficult circumstances. This psalm, Psalm 73, works through the question that says, Why does it seem like the wicked prosper and the righteous are always under fire? This psalmist, Asaph, is, is trying to figure out why, God, if you are good, <clears throat> do the unrighteous, the wicked, seem to prosper in this life so often? No doubt a question that we have. We think about that even in terms of when catastrophe strikes in our lives. We look around and think, Lord, if you're going to bring catastrophe, if difficulty is going to come, if you're going to allow it through you know, your purposes and through those things, why not bring it on those guys? Right? The ones who hate you, the ones who are cursing your name, the ones who are trying to get everybody to reject you. Why not let them deal with all of this difficulty, God? And so he spends the first part of this psalm, basically verses 1 through 14, kind of rehashing this this apparent prosperity of the wicked. And we want to think of it like that. It is an apparent prosperity. Uh, this is not the reality. And it's important for us to understand that. And he gets to that point, and we're going to see that. 
But he begins thinking through this. And this, in this guy's mind at this time, as he is thinking through these things, the first part of this psalm, this is his reality. It's a false reality. It's not true. So it's an apparent prosperity that he sees the wicked are having. He says, surely is God good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so as he's going to rehash this and get to his point, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time at the end, he does start off thinking rightly. And now he's going to show us how he processes his thoughts, how he thinks through this, and how he gets to this this end So surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? In other words, I'm struggling immensely. (laughs) I'm struggling immensely. I know the truth, verse 1, that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I know that. I believe that. We know that. We believe that. It's where the psalmist is. But as for me, and I think we really connect with that at times, since my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. Why? Gives the reason, verse 3, 4. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That's the reason why he's struggling. He looks around at the earth, he looks around at the planet, looks around at the people that he can see the world at his time, and he says, I am envious of those guys because their life seems easier than mine. They seem to be getting blessings that I think I should have as one of God's children. I don't know if you've ever found yourself there. I mean, you look around at some of these people who are really prospering and and, you know, we, we look at their lives only from afar often, maybe, maybe some closer. But, and we just see this apparent prosperity. We just see this, this happy life. They have whatever they want. There's not a care in the world for them. And they're just living so wickedly. They, they love evil. They glorify evil. And we think... Man, I kind of wish I had the happiness and the prosperity of their life, but I don't get it (laughs) because they are so wicked. They are so evil. And he goes on to describe that, how he's thinking. Verse 4, he says, For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. The idea of fatness, especially in in these times, was, was a one who was prosperous, one who had no needs. They had everything they could ever want. And he says there's no pains in their death. Well, obviously, this is an apparent reality because there's always pains in death. But for him, looking at this this world through these these false-colored glasses, if you will, this is what he's seeing. He's saying they just just have this simple life, and, and even when they die, they don't have difficulty. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Notice how he's making general assumptions. Don't we do that? We look like everybody has it better than I do. And especially those folks. Now I look at like I look at their life, and yeah, they they might live wickedly, but well, they have a they have a good life. 
They have all they could ever want. They're not plagued. They don't have the trials that I have. They don't have the difficulties that I have. And it's just this kind of this general observation, looking out and coming to that conclusion. As a result, he says in verse 6, Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Because they have all this prosperity, they can just be who they are. They can be violent. They can be prideful. You look at these folks who have a lot of power and authority in our world. Often we see them in the media, different things, and we think, and they are so pompous. <laughs> they are so arrogant, so prideful. They are characterized by violence, but yet they're, they have so much power, it seems. Their eye bulges from their fatness. Their imaginations of their heart run riot. It looks like there's no stipulations upon their life. It looks like they can do whatever they want and get away with it. They can live however they want, fulfill every fleshly desire, and there's no consequences for them. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have these powerful thoughts. They have this, this power that they have come to. They speak as those who have authority. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. They can just speak blasphemies to God and nothing happens to them. Lord, they're so prosperous. But they're so wicked. Verse 10, therefore, as people return to this place and the waters of abundance are drunk by them, they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Lord, how could these possibly be? They're always at ease. They have everything they want. Perhaps you've had those thoughts before. Perhaps you've struggled in thinking through how to understand wickedness in this world. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's processing this. He's thinking through. Then he makes this comparison. Right in verse 13, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. So, Lord, following you apparently doesn't matter. Following you gets me trials and tribulations and difficulties. If I were just to live the life that they live, apparently my life is going to be at ease. And I'm going to have everything I want. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Lord, I am receiving trials. I, I'm receiving discipline from you. I'm one of your children. I love you. I'm following you. And I'm receiving this. And their life is at ease. That's where the psalmist is at. 
That's the apparent prosperity of the wicked. That's, that's what he's thinking about. It's how he's processing life. And, and we do that. We do that in various ways, in general ways, in ways of comparison, comparing our life with other people's lives, comparing our difficulties in this life. We think they are so much. It can be so hard. But yet I have companions. I have people I work with. I have people I go to school with. I have family members who don't love Christ, who aren't following Christ. But their life is so easy, and it looks to be so good. That's what the psalmist is thinking through here. This is the apparent prosperity of the wicked. But then his mind shifts. His mind shifts. He begins to think rightly about things. It happens in verse 15. And, and I love this because this represents what we have to do. It's not that we're not going to think wrongly about things. We do. It's not like, not that we're going to never process life in a wrong way or what's happening in a wrong way. We have wrong thoughts. We have ungodly thoughts. We have unbiblical thoughts. That's still our flesh, right? We're waiting for our perfection. We're waiting for Christ to return. We're waiting for new bodies. We're waiting for our mind to be completely and totally perfectly renewed, right? We're waiting for that. That time is coming. But right now, that's not where we are. Right now, we still have to battle the flesh. We still have to battle unbiblical thoughts. We still have to battle ungodliness in our desires. The psalmist was doing that. He, he, was, he was processing things in the first part of this psalm unbiblically. He did not have the right perspective on life. That's why I love this second part, because we see the shift in his thinking, which tells us what? It tells us that we can shift our thinking. For those of us who are in Christ, we can change the way that we think, and we can begin to think biblically. And we see that happen. It says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. So I, I just don't get it, Lord. I don't understand this contrast between the wicked and the righteous. They prosper, we don't. They prosper, we're stricken, we're chastened. Verse 17. Until. Until. I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Asaph is he's questioning God in one way here in the first part. He's, he's thinking through this. He's processing what he's seeing to be apparently true. And he's, he's almost asking himself these questions. How could this be? How could this be happening? How can this be for the righteous? How can this be for me? And then he finds the answer. I love this, in the sanctuary of God. 
Well, when we see those terms in Scripture, when we think about the sanctuary of God, we think about what? We think about worship. Uh, we think about worship and we, we come and we worship God. And so he came into the house of God. He came in, the ritual sacrifices that they did, the reading of the Torah. He came and he began to worship. It says, until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. And when he started thinking upon God, when he started worshiping God, when he, when he changed his mindset from focusing on all that was obscure to that which really mattered, he then perceived their end. This is the true reality of the wicked in these verses. So you have the parent of prosperity of the wicked in verses 1 through 14. Here you have the, you have the true reality of the wicked in verses 15 through 22. And here he describes their, their end. As he begins to focus upon God, he understands that, that the wicked cannot prosper. They, they, they're going to have a bit of prosperity in this life, but this life is a mist. It's but a vapor that disappears. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And so he begins to describe what he's coming to understand. He says, surely you set them in slippery places and you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. In other words, God will not be mocked. God will bring his justice to bear on the wicked who reject him. Yes, we are to have a heart of compassion. Yes, we are to share the gospel with the lost world who desperately needs to hear of this gracious God. But as God's children, we want God's justice. We want God to be magnified and glorified in his justice, and that will take place when the wicked are crushed beneath his feet. And, and Asaph is finding hope, and relief. He's finding his answer in that truth. He says, they will be totally destroyed. That's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. It challenges us in one sense because we want to be those who rejoice in the fact that God is just. But we also look out at the world as, as Jesus looked out on the world when he walked on this earth and our hearts break for those who have rejected Christ. So it challenges us to be faithful Christians, to be faithful with the gospel, to be faithful in living lives of holiness, but at the same time, it comforts us to know that God is right in what he does and that the wicked are not truly going to prosper. Listen, he recounts here in verses 21 and 22, he recounts where he was 
And then he's going to explain to us how he got to understand these things. Verse 21, he said, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, that was the first part of Psalm 73, then I was senseless and and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Also referring to even an unregenerate life before, before he came to the Lord. He said, this is who I was. This is who they are. And this is how I was even thinking as a Christian. I was ignorant. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Though my thinking was wrong, my thinking is now correct. And one day I will be in heaven with you. You know, it's when we're dealing with the catastrophes of life, the difficulties of life. That's when things get a little muddy, isn't it? Isn't that when our mind seems to be distracted? Because there's so much going on. Difficulties easily can capture our attention. Hard things in life, they, they can become the dwelling place for us. They can be the place where we begin to focus and, and we set our minds and our attention upon it. And that makes us senseless and ignorant. <laughs> that, that causes us to think like the world. That causes us to not think upon God. And so it's so important for us to shift our thinking, to remember that I'm not like these guys. I'm not like the wicked. My end is not destruction. My end is the reality that you're going to receive me to glory. So though I have difficulties in this life and the wicked seem to not have difficulties in this life, which is not true, by the way. Wicked do. But though I perceive that to be the case, the truth of the matter is the wicked are going to perish but I am going to be received to glory with my Savior. That's a wonderful thought. That's a wonderful thought. It's a wonderful truth. Well, that brings us to where I really want to focus. Sorry. <laughs> and that's in, verses, that's in verses 23 through 28. We already read 23 and 24, so basically 25 through 28. And I think we call this the proper resolution of the righteous. The proper resolution of the righteous. Because this, this, this is the glue that holds this whole thing together. This is the hinge. This is what helps us to see, okay, so this guy obviously was thinking poorly. (laughs) And then he was thinking biblically. What changed? What changed? How did his mind shift? Verse 25. Psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh 
and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You can see it in there. The proper resolution of the righteous is to draw near to God. To draw near to God. His thinking shifted from the apparent prosperity of the wicked to understanding the reality of the wicked, which was helpful for him, which brought him hope. By shifting his thinking to the goodness of God. By shifting his thoughts to the fact that the nearness of God is my good. Why is the nearness of God my good? Why is that true? He says that in verse 28. The nearness of God is my good. Why? Well, I think there's three reasons. There's three reasons why he gets to this point, which which we see in verses 25, 26, and 27, and then verse 28. And the first reason why the nearness of God is his good, why the focus upon the goodness of God, the, the meditation upon the goodness of God, why that is his good First reason would be that drawing near to God clarifies my perspective. Drawing near to God clarifies my perspective. See that verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. You see, when we meditate on God, when we fill our minds with God, the real God, the God of the Bible. He is so vast, he is so great, he is so fulfilling that he completely and totally fills our minds with who he is. He consumes us. He consumes us. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on the earth. You see that? God, you are the focus of my heart. You are the focus of my thoughts. You are the one that I love. You are the one that I find comfort in. You are the one that I trust. When a person is focused on that reality, what does he say? He says, besides you, I desire nothing on the earth. He, in, he, he captures all of our desires. He makes our desires totally fulfilled in himself. He clarifies our perspective. Drawing near to God clarifies my perspective. I go to the eye doctor a lot, a lot. I sometimes see them more than uh, my own family certain weeks. Um, just was there again this last week, and Dr. Batia, pray for him, by the way. He's a, I think he's a, I don't know what he is. He's a, a Zeke, I think. You think about uh, different religions. Anyways, I'm, I'm working up the courage to talk to him about the gospel. I'm trying to find a way in. So, again, see this guy a lot. Dr. Batia. 
Anyways, when you go to the eye doctor, you sit in that chair, right? And, and you know that the time is coming when they're going to get abundantly close to your face, which I really appreciate. Thankfully, when I walk in there, I stop to wear a mask. It's the only time in my life I've enjoyed wearing a mask is when I go into that dark cell because, you know, they come right here because they're going to look through those things that you're looking through, and it's, it's way too close. But anyways, we understand what happens with the eye thing, right? We, we sit there, and, and most of us go because they got to check our vision, and, and this guy's just looking to make sure my corneas aren't melting away, and I'm going blind, you know? So, so I'm thankful for that. Appreciate him. Appreciate him a lot. Um, but when you're sitting there, and you're looking through those things, and, and then they have this strange number system. Are you all familiar with that? Right? You're looking through, and you're thinking, boy, my eyes are worse than I thought. I can't see anything that's there. And then he starts yelling out numbers, right? One, two, and he clicks it. It might be a little bit better. And it gets to the point where they're trying to really, I think it's called refraction. They're trying to get your eyes down to the exact prescription that you need. You know, you get into the numbers like I've gotten into, like five or six. Yeah. There's not a lot of difference there. It's like, can we be done with the process, sir? You know, you are so close to me. Just choose one of these. You choose what's best. I mean, you're the eye doctor. But what's he doing with that process? He's clarifying our perspective, right? He's clarifying our eyes. He, he wants us to walk out of there with the best prescription we have, which, by the way, I just got this new pair of glasses because I thought I needed them. I don't know what's going on. I think the Lord performed a, a miracle on one of my eyes. Like, I'm seeing the best I've ever seen in my life. So something happened, and I praise the Lord for that. I don't know how long it's going to last. I'm kind of a glass half empty kind of guy, so I feel like I'll probably go blind in the next week. But, but right now, today, like I feel, I feel great. I can look out, I can see faces and know who you are. It's awesome. Anyways, that's besides the point. They gave me this new pair of glasses, and I, and I wear them, and, and I was getting a headache. I couldn't see straight because my headache was so bad, and I realized, like, I am seeing, like, I don't even know. You have 2020 is good, like 2010 is really good. Then what, I don't even know what goes after that. I was seeing, like, I could see through people. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but my head hurt really bad. So I no longer wear those glasses. I'm very grateful. So the refraction, just to say, doesn't always work. I say all of that. Sorry, I digressed. I say all of that to make the point that when we go to the eye doctor, we get a clarified perspective on life as he refracts our eyes. When you draw near to God in the midst of difficulty... In the midst of catastrophe, in the midst of unbiblical thinking, he clarifies your perspective. He helps you see him for who he truly is. And when we see God for who he truly is, we are overwhelmed and we say with the psalmist, who have I in heaven but you? No one I desire but you. And that's what happens. It's how his Thinking begins to shift. But it doesn't just clarify our perspective. Drawing near to God also culminates in peace. Peace comes when we draw near to God. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. So he's, he's realizing the realities of living life in this world. <laughs> our flesh, you know, you guys are at the prime of your life. You, you probably are still going up. Most of you, maybe some of you are going, but most of you, you're still going up here. I'm telling you what, I am on the backside, right? I am going down. I realize that my life's at least half over, maybe more. I, you know, that's just the reality. I'm learning that every day. I'm starting to have these problems sleeping. 
I don't understand this. I've always slept well. Anyways. He's realizing the reality of life. My flesh and my heart may fail. Much like Job realized in Job 19. But, verse 26, this massive contrast. He's not focused on the fact that his heart and his flesh may fail. He was focused on that in the first half of the psalm. But, now he's changed. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now he's at peace. He's at peace because he is reflecting upon who God is and he knows that every breath that he takes is because of the strength of God. God is his true portion. The wicked prosperity thing, that's not his true portion. He doesn't have to focus his life upon that. He doesn't have to be envious of that as he was there in the first half of the psalm. Now, now, this drawing near to God has culminated in the peace of his heart because God is his portion. God is his strength. He's drawing near to this good God who is satisfying his every need and his every desire. And it's just pushing out all of those peripheral things that are begging for his attention and begging for him to stop trusting in the Lord. So drawing near to God culminates in peace. But also verses 27, 28, we'll kind of see this at the end of verse 28, but drawing near to God constitutes my praise. It constitutes my praise. Again, he reflects on the reality in verse 27. Here he sees the contrast, or he gives the contrast again. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and those you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Again, God is going to be just. But, massive, massive contrast, verse 28. But as for you, or as for me, he says, the nearness of God is my good. That's, that's that hinge. It's where everything flows from. That nearness to God, it, it clarifies our perspective. It culminates in our peace as we realize he is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And then it constitutes our praise. The end of verse 28, he said, I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So he goes from the first part of Psalm 73 of complaint, envy, struggling with unbiblical thinking to thinking biblically. And then he explains, this is why the nearness of God is my good. I've come to the one who helps me think rightly. And what does he do? He then tells other people about it. You can, you can always tell when your thinking changes. Because what do you talk about when your focus is upon the issues of life? You focus on the issues of life. Right? You might be talking, and it's good to talk those things out. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that we can always notice that our focus is upon those things. 
when our thinking shifts and the nearness of God has truly become our good, that constitutes our praise and we tell of people all of his works. So it's no longer, you know, my life is a, a bummer in this way and this way and this way and for some of us in this way. And this, you know, It's now, man, God is so good to me. God is so faithful. Let me, let me tell you how God has been faithful to me in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this trial. Let me tell you how, how when I have drawn near to God, it clarified my perspective on who he was. Let me tell you that I have so much joy right now, even in the midst of the disaster that I'm facing, because of who he is. That's why the nearness of God is my good. It clarifies our perspective. It culminates in our peace. It, it constitutes our praise. There's so many examples. We don't have time to work through those examples, but let me just give them to you. You have, you have Asaph, obviously, in this psalm. You have Elijah, 1 Kings 19. You have Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, as we went through that. Those guys always got a, those guys got a clarified perspective as they drew near to God in difficult circumstances in life. You have David in Psalm 16, as he drew near to God, and it culminated in his peace. So he had so many issues in his life, and as he would reflect upon who God was, God granted him peace and joy in the midst of those circumstances. Drawing near to God constitutes our praise. You can think of Moses. Exodus 33 and 34, when God reveals himself to him. As he drew near to God, God, I want to see your face. Show me your glory. God says, hide your face in rock. I'm going to pass by you. How are we to draw near to God? How are we to draw near to God? Well, it begins, first of all, in the fact that we draw near to God through Christ's cross, right? We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's Ephesians 2. We draw near to Christ through the cross. So what that says to us right now is that if you are here today and you don't know Christ, then everything we've talked about is extremely foreign to you. There is no drawing near to God for you because you're either just totally not drawing near to God because you don't have anything to do with him or you're trying to draw near to God in your own way, through your own means, by your own terms. And that's never going to work. If you are going to draw near to God, if you are going to get to the place where the psalmist is at the end of Psalm 73, then it begins with the cross of Jesus Christ. It begins with you taking responsibility for the reality that you are a depraved sinner before a holy God and that the only way to be made right with him is by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, that he is the perfect son of God who lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live, who died upon the cross to pay for the sins that you should have paid for. Now he rose again and he is eternally reigning as the king of this universe. 
But he's going to come back. He's going to take his people home to be with him. And you have to come. You have to believe in him. You turn from your sin and repentance. Turn away from that. Turn away from believing whatever you're believing in. It's not Christ. And you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. When you do that, Romans chapter 5 tells us that you now have peace with God. It is a, a justification. It is, it is this peace that is settled. It's set. You are no longer counted as an enemy of God. You are now counted as a friend of God. And when you're a friend of God, then, then you are like the psalmist here at the end of this chapter. And as you walk through this life and you battle with unbiblical thinking and you battle with difficulty and you battle with catastrophe, you can continually come back and set your mind on the goodness of God. And so you draw near to God through Christ's cross and then you draw near to God through, through closet communion. Sorry, I get stuck on alliteration. Through closet communion. What's that? What's that private worship of God that should take place every single day in your life? It's that Matthew 6, go in the closet, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in heaven. This is that, that worship of Christ that should be the center of your life as a Christian. As you spend time in his word and in prayer, you draw near to God through that means. Your, your vitality, your life, your, your ability to be sustained in difficult times depends upon that. We saw that in the life of Job, didn't we? How was Job able to get to the end of chapter one and say, naked I came from mother's womb, naked I will return, blessed be the name of the Lord? How was he able to get to that point? Well, it was in verse five, I believe, of chapter one, that daily Job worshiped. Daily, Job worshiped. So you draw near to God through this closet communion. Finally, you draw near to God through corporate communion. Certainly you have communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table today as a church. But more than that, this corporate communion is that, that meeting together, that fellowship with other believers, that, that corporate worship. You remember what happened to the psalmist? When did his thinking begin to change? When did all of this come into perspective? Verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Guys, you gotta be here. This has gotta be the priority of your life. <laughs> and whatever God's doing here at Countryside right now, it, it's, it's awesome. And we're thankful for it. We're thankful for what God's doing. And, and you have just such an unbelievably awesome opportunity right now to be at this place. And so, so take advantage of it. Be here. Sit under the word of God. Fellowship with these dear saints who come to this church. Get into their lives. Serve them. Be served by them. Worship God together with these people. It helps clarify your perspective. So we draw near to God 
first through Christ's cross and coming to Christ alone. We draw near to God through our closet communion, through our personal worship, and we draw near to God through corporate communion, through our, our corporate worship. This is the means. And that's what we want. Because we want to look at the issues of life with the right perspective so that we can respond rightly, so that we can have joy in the midst of the difficulties. And we can be a testimony to those around us as we walk through it. Well, next time we'll continue to think about the goodness of God through another text, but I hope you're encouraged. I love Psalm 73. I love Psalm 73. And we, we are just challenged to think biblically in so many ways, and, and we just get the, we get the raw humanity of this writer, don't we? that we identify with, that we can say, okay, man, that guy changed his mind by doing these things. The Lord worked in his life through these means. The Lord does that for his people, through all of those who love Christ. And so I hope you find encouragement in that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time. Lord, thank you for Asaph. Thank you for the reality of the psalm. And Lord, particularly the end of this psalm is we see there that the, the nearness of God is our good. Thank you that you draw near to us. Thank you you've given us the means to draw near to you. Father, help us to do that. Help us to think biblically. Help us to be cultivating this kind of mindset all the time and in preparation. Lord, we have to We have to prepare ourselves so that we are prepared when difficulties and catastrophes occur so that we continue to think rightly, you continue to grow us, and we continue to love you more, and we continue to be effective for you. Thank you for your goodness to us. It is all-consuming, Lord. We love you. In Christ's name.